0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. It's a pleasure to be here today. I see a lot of uh, friends and a lot of people that I know are involved in or interested in the criminal justice system. So it's great to see you here today. Uh, I'm joined here on stage uh, with three uh, illustrious uh, panel participants. To my immediate left, Brian Jackson, who's director of the uh, Safety and Justice uh, Program at RAND. To his immediate left, uh, Dan Lavelle, who many of you no doubt know, a second-term city councilman in the city of Pittsburgh, and also head of the Public Safety Committee of the city of Pittsburgh. And uh, to the far left, Chief uh, Cameron McClay, who is the newly minted, about six months now, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah. Chief, Chief of Police of the City of Pittsburgh. I see a number of people in the audience that helped serve on the Citizen Selection Committee that made recommendations to the mayor. And I know that you're all uh, proud of um, uh, Chief McClay, what he's done here in Pittsburgh so far. Uh, so without uh, further delay, just wanted to frame uh, very quickly the discussion here. At Today, because it's it's, criminal justice uh, is a large um, topic. We're going to bite off a small piece of that. I mean, most people today would say that the criminal justice system is an entry point for far too many people, and there are a lot of societal ills, education issues, social service, human service issues that are, you know, feeding the pipeline. Um, That's not the topic of our conversation uh, today. and others would say, um, you know, and some of us agree with them, that the criminal justice system itself is broken, even though larger systems are funneling more individuals into the criminal justice system. You know, we have 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. We have the highest imprisonment rate of any you know, real country in the world. But that's a whole separate issue too, and we're not going to talk about that here today, but it is important just to note that the police and the police interaction with the community is really the front line of that entire system. and so in some ways it's you know like the water tension it's where you know two different uh, societies come together in some ways and So what we really want to talk about today is that intersection between the the community and the police, and it's certainly a timely topic now, uh, given what we've all seen in the nightly news over the last six months. So let's begin at Ferguson, Uh, and we don't want to dissect things that have already happened. We want to talk about things moving forward, and we'd ask that questions you have are sort of more prospective rather than trying to dissect history, but uh, in response to the Ferguson episode. Uh, President Obama did appoint a commission to look into the issue of uh, trust and community relations, uh, police, community, trust uh, issues, and so I'll turn to Brian, and Brian ask you to give us a perspective of that uh, commission, uh, what its work is, when its report is due, and um, its relevance to today's stuff.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. So the... The President's uh, Commission on, on Policing, uh, 21st Century Policing, uh, started uh, in, in December, um, so it was uh, not very long ago. It was a commission that was made up of uh, police professionals, so police leadership, former DOJ um, leadership, academics who had who had done research on this issue, um members of community groups, civil civil rights attorneys. um and it, uh, in, in a ninety day window, which is a sort of an incredibly short timeline for anything to happen in Washington, had the charge to sort of really open up and sort of get a lot of input on the issue of police-community relations but sort of broaden out. So looking at sort of issues of technology, um, issues of police strategy. They had many listening sessions, so, you know, sort of seven or so hearings where they heard more than a hundred different uh, briefings. In fact, uh, some from, from folks who are here in the audience, um, so who may have things to add about that later, and really sort of took a, a very wide look at, at this problem and different approaches to it. There interim report came out that contained something like 60 action items and, and, and different recommendations that, that really covered sort of things from uh, sort of philosophy behind policing and sort of approaches to it um, to, to specific technology issues. So now we're sort of at the point where the, the report's being finalized and sort of the, the criminal justice system in the U.S., which is, is sort of made up of 18,000-plus you know, you know, separate departments, is sort of looking at this set of recommendations to to sort of say, you know, which of them are sort of relevant and appropriate to to their specific community and and, and sort of looks for steps forward. So it's sort of looking, it's it's sort of a top-down federal look um, at sort of a menu of options um, for improving police-community relations uh, in our very sort of heterogeneous uh, policing uh, sort of system.
0: Thank you. Chief, I may turn to you uh, next. That. The, you've been in office for a relatively short time. Mm-hmm. Um, to follow up on Brian's comment about federal interest in this program, you, you have entered into a partnership already, which is a big, fast step forward for a new Absolutely. chief. Uh, could you tell
2: us a little bit about
0: um, this new partnership you're entering into, what precipitated it, and sort of what you hope to see out of it?
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I was hired with the task of doing a few things. Uh, You know, number one, to improve uh, police community relationships, to bridge the trust gaps between Pittsburgh police and the communities that we serve. Uh, asked also to implement uh, community ori- oriented data driven decision making, and then a third seemingly unrelated uh, potentially but really not uh, improving the morale within the organization and I hope during the course of this conversation we're going to talk about how tightly bound tightly bound those issues are, particularly with respect to the relationships between the police and the communities we serve, particularly our communities of color who uh, experience a very different interaction with police at times than uh the white majority does and internal morale and perceptions what we'll talk about is procedural justice as we're going forward but one of the things i uh recognized coming to town uh had opportunity to have a lot of conversations with uh, members of various communities um, made a particular point of reaching out to those who had been very critical of police and those, those uh, involved in police accountability conversations, trying to get my head around and fully understand what were the issues here in Pittsburgh. And what I, one of the things I discovered is that there are... Uh, we're not as far away as from one another as we think we are. And my experience here in Pittsburgh has been like an experience I had in, um, back in Madison, is as we get together, we, the police and members of the community, and we we enter into respectful dialogue, and people members of uh, particularly adversely impacted communities have an opportunity to say, "Police, do you know that when you do it this way, this is how it feels? Do you know that when you do this?" This is, this is the impact that it has on us Do you recognize the pain you're causing. And when police make sure the community members feel heard, and then police, when it's appropriate, start sharing, well, did you know this is why we do it, and we're not doing it to cause harm, really amazing things start to happen as we start understanding one another better. And one of the things that I recognize is that in order to improve policing here in Pittsburgh or anywhere else, Uh, One of the key, there's some key things we really have to get our heads around and understanding. Uh, First is the impact that implicit bias or unconscious bias has on the way we human beings interpret and perceive one another. It's not a police community thing. It's not a white, black thing. It's not a male, female thing. It's a human being thing. We're all prone to these cognitive shortcuts that we take. And they have a very insidious effect on the, the attributional judgments we make about one another. And I've observed from my earlier career that when you help officers understand this concept and when you have community members understanding those concepts, we hit pause. We're willing to check our, our judgments. And I thought, OK, I need the best training I can bring to Pittsburgh in order to help us understand this. And. Uh, I recognize that if we were to be lucky enough to secure the national initiative, I would bring the very, very best that this country has to offer in terms of training in this area here to Pittsburgh and in a manner in which I can afford it in a financially distressed city. I also recognize that procedural justice is critical to the perceptions from the public of how they feel about the way the police treat them. I've long known that procedural justice internally within, the, within organizations is absolutely critical to the morale, the uh, mental health and well-being of members of the community, and that officers of the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police will treat the public no better than they perceive I as their chief their city government, and their organizational leadership system teaching them. So I think, OK, I need the best training that I can find, and i got to find a way to pay for it. And as luck would have it, the National Initiative brings some of the best minds in uh, policing here to help provide training in those critical areas. And the third thing the National Initiative will do, that uh, from the time I walked in the door, I desperately wanted community surveys. I wanted to be able to measure what is, what do the trust gaps look like? What are the things driving it? And be able to do internal surveys internally. What are the trust gap issues internally? Where are the gaps in procedural justice? And so, as luck would have it, uh, we were able to show some meaningful progress forward here in Pittsburgh, and we were blessed to be offered the opportunity to be one of the pilot cities. So, I couldn't be more excited with the opportunity to, to bring bring this this uh, here to Pittsburgh. It puts a lot of, puts us under a lot of pressure. What we do here in this community over the next three years uh, is going to be in the eyes of the entire nation. So, uh, my intention is that we're going to succeed greatly, but uh, it also puts a lot of pressure on us to, you know, hold ourselves to task.
0: Thanks, Chief. Uh, Councilman Lavelle. You know, we've heard, you know, or talked a little bit about presidential commissions and procedural justice and national training programs. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, you're in touch with constituents and uh, communities of color, as you've mentioned, where you know presidential commissions and academic training programs may not bear immediate fruit. Um, can you give us your, your perspective of what, what needs to happen, what the police need to do, you know, sort of on the streets, in the communities that you represent,
3: uh, before we can really see a level of trust being built? A number of things, actually, um, because from the position that I sit in, Establishing that trust is not solely between the community and the police force, but rather that trust is also part of a much larger problem, I would actually argue. And unfortunately, without sort of revisiting history, if we look at what has recently happened in Baltimore, I believe the last state of emergency was around 1968. And when you look at the west side of Baltimore and what recently happened from 68 until now, so, so 40 some odd years, many of those conditions are still the same. The same, you still have the literally some boarded up homes are still those same boarded up homes from the last state of emergency. The same poor education is in place. The same amount of unemployment is in place. The same amount of despair, health disparities within the communities are still in place. And then add on top of that, a police force that many, not all, but many have grown to fear as opposed to trust, now makes it sort of all boil over. And I think for many, specifically in parts of the city that I represent, they look at it as a much larger lack of faith within their community, that government as a whole has failed them, and the police are simply one aspect of that. And so from my perspective, in order to begin having this specific relationship, we must look at the entire picture. Um, But getting deeper into the very specific relationship, as an example, there was a woman I met with last week, uh, maybe Thursday or Friday, and she came to me because she said, we need to do something now to address what may become a bloody summer in the Hill District. If we don't get in front of what I see happening on the ground Mm -hmm. with young men and women, and the chief would know some of these details we probably can't really discuss. But at the end of her conversation, um, I said, okay. I was amazed at how much information she had, but I was also amazed at how much she was unwilling to share with the police because there was a lack of trust. And her belief, what she said to me at the time, was when I said... Would you be willing, you and a few other parents in the community, be willing to have a very private conversation with myself, the chief, and the commander to begin discussing these specifics? And then how do we broaden this out to a much larger conversation? Her response to me was, why would I trust them when I see them go on TV and defend themselves of what we all know was illegal activity, or at least in the eyes of many, was unjustified violence from the police to the community? And so that, and that was a hard... Thing for her to get past. And eventually, after much-needed conversation, we got to a point where she was willing to say, I'll trust you to lead this conversation. But from my perspective, many within the community want to see officers who have, in their views, unjustified violence on citizens, and or in the worst case, homicides, be prosecuted in the same manner in which those that they're sworn to protect are also prosecuted. They don't see that happen, And because of that, there's a fundamental lack of trust. Um, The other thing that I would say, and to the chief's credit, I actually believe he's done a lot to change this reality, is that we need a police force that's not coming into the community to manage it, but rather work with it. And so we don't need a police force. Another word, you probably just call it community policing. But it's to say, come in and work with us to better the relationship, allow us to have the stronger relationship so that we can come to you. And work with you on these issues, as opposed to what we often feel is something happens, and now all of a sudden a militarized police force is here to manage our community, which is not what we need.
0: Uh,
3: Brian, uh, you know, Dan Rice is a
0: you know a pretty interesting point that you can you can talk about building trust. That it's easier to talk about than actually do it. Um, you recently finished up a research paper looking into you know some. Uh, evidence-based uh, indicators of what what does work in the way of building trust because it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that research and maybe some proven uh, theories around change?
1: Well, I mean, the the work that I did is really sort of standing on the, the shoulders of, of sort of criminologists that have been working on this issue for a long time. I mean, one of the the ironies in this is that there, you know, this is a topic that we're focused on now because of what happened today, but it's a topic that's been important and been the focus of attention for many, many years. And the, 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 the benefit of that is that there is a body of work, you know, based on, you know, concepts like procedural justice that, you know, provide a path to, you know, sort of bring police and, and the community together, essentially to talk through these issues. I mean, sort of the elements of procedural justice include, you know, having the, uh, you know, the opportunity to tell your side of the story, which is important in an in a interaction between a police officer and an individual or a police department and a community where there will always be sort of a, an asymmetry in authority. Um, and having you know, both sides be able to you know, sort of give their side of the story, feel like they're heard, um, be able to have confidence they're treated fairly. Mm-hmm. The history of these relationships Makes building that confidence tough, and it's uh, you know the the, sort of the way that I summarize it is it's you know you can only build that confidence through deeds, not just words. I mean, and it's 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 policy, um, but it's also how that policy is implemented when individual officers interact with individual citizens, whether that's in a you know being pulled over for a traffic stop or whether that's going to you know to help somebody out when they're calling police for help, and so it's. It's uh, sort of implementing these concepts of procedural justice you know, from the individual level, um, which is you know, sort of modeled for officers in the way that um, police departments um, sort of manage them. Um, and it's, it's sort of modeled at the, 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 the department level in sort of the interactions between the department and the community um, to sort of build <coughs> these relationships, which is what sustains that trust and lets it survive um, you know incidents like you know, the tragic incidents, whether it's a citizen that that is killed in the in, uh, interaction between the citizen and police, or whether it's an officer who's killed um, in in a situation. If if the trust exists, um, you can weather those crisis situations and and work through them. But without the the relationship and without the infrastructure, you know sort of those become you know, the incidents that sort of tear down the the trust that uh, that exists.
0: Um, this is a. A five-minute warning, so to say. That, uh, I have a couple. Another question for the chief and for Dan, and then we want to open this up because we really want it to be interactive. So, start start your wheels grinding. Um, chief, you know, two hundred years ago, when the first police forces were, were formed, there you know there was much more of a, a focus on prevention. But certainly, these days, the Public thinks of the police as arresting machines to some degree, and some police think of themselves in that way. So, uh, I'm going to give you a, a semi-tough one to sort of say we, you know, the research can talk about sitting around and having dialogue with the community and all, but when it comes right down to, you know, some cynics would say, getting police officers to sit around a campfire and. You know, sing songs is not the easiest thing to do. So sure, sure. as a leader, you know, as a, as a police chief, how, how do you go about really changing what might be a mindset? You know, how do you model that kind of behavior in, in the rank and file who are engaged in these confrontations or at least
2: interactions on a, a regular basis? No, and, and modeling is the correct correct word and it really does come down to mindset is how do we as police and I'm talking nationally not just here in Pittsburgh how do we define our role do we see ourselves as looking at our communities as prospective terrorists waiting for somebody to do something wrong so we can use the only tool we on our gun belt or on our belt that we enjoy using that being the power of arrest or do we contemplate ourselves as peace officers as members of the community who empower communities to deal with the low level issues so that then when it's time for us to use our sworn authority to make arrests and for those unfortunate few circumstances to use physical force that we, we reserve those for the times when all else all else fails. So it really begins with a mindset, it begins with uh, begins with modeling. Uh, so as a, as a chief I had to I made it a special point to start modeling externally first building those relationships setting up those lines of communication now when we're having those kinds of communications whether it's a police chief whether it's an officer who puts the car in park gets out and starts talking to people in the neighborhoods those are planting those initial seeds of trust we're planting seed, we're planting seeds And hopefully sustained over time, those will grow into something that roughly approximates trust. The time when we're going to need to harvest that trust that we planted is when we have those critical incidents, when we have those bad arrests, when we have those good arrests that draw public attention. We have to realize that when uh, officers try to make arrests and suspects violently resist, it's never pretty. Even if it's completely lawful, it's never attractive, and it always causes... Questions for community. So, how do we sustain enough relation, enough trust, enough trust in the in the trust bank, as the way Stephen Covey used to call it, that we're willing to hit pause on the emotional response and then withhold judgment before decide on uh, before uh, we have our reaction. And what I'm hoping is that with within uh, this community, we're able to plant enough of those seeds, and enough of them are to, willing to grow that when we have our next incident. That the doesn't quite recognize. Rather than jump to the emotional response, will people pick up a call first. And I had a great example of that just as a couple, about a week and a half ago. Officers in uh, our Homewood area uh, thought that they were fired upon. Uh, we were re- retreat back into the area. They thought they saw where the gunfire came from. They called in. The SWAT team to respond. They had a large area to search, and it caused quite a stir within the neighborhood. But there were people within the neighborhood who knew, knew us, knew me, knew the work we were trying to do. I picked up the phone. Hey, chief, you know how this looks? This is what people are talking about in the neighborhood. And so I just called my commander. He invited those people with the concerns to come in. They were upset when they walked in the door, but they had a meaningful, respectful dialogue. And by the time they were done explaining their concerns, then the officers Explain what that felt like. Then the SWAT team explained why they do what they do. And by the time they were done, the same people who walked in the door angry gave my officers a standing ovation. So when, you, when we plant those seeds, it does buy us the time to do what we need to do for the often unattractive uh, sport of police work. But the quality of that trust within the community is based on the quality of each human interaction that you know, my 857 officers have every single day. Every one of those, you have two human beings interacting with one another, and either both walk away feeling that it was fair and just and a uh, you know procedurally sound, or people walk away feeling treated poorly, feeling distrustful, not understanding what happened and why. And so there's, uh, it's not, it's very very necessary that we continue to be good at the the uh, traditional law enforcement role in order to reduce crime and deal with violence within our communities. We just have to find a more artful way to do it so at the same time we're able to communicate why we do what we do, that the community members who are affected have an opportunity to share their perspective. As Councilman Lovell mentioned, people want to know, want to know, you know, want to explain how things feel, and then we have to provide them reasonable explanation so that even if we don't like the outcome, at least they understand the justice behind why things are done the way they are. So uh, we have to do both. We have to maintain our capacity with the uh, with the enforcement skills, but we can never give up on the relational things at the same time.
0: If I can just follow up for a second, just to drill down on one piece of uh, what you were talking about, procedural justice. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, and as Brian mentioned, it is you know the concept of the you know external procedural justice between the police and the community. Can you talk a little bit about internal
3: uh,
2: yeah, I, procedural justice? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. My, my first in, uh, venture into this whole police community trust happened when about 90, 1996 or so. I was a captain in Madison. And I was assigned to be in charge of the strategic planning trust uh, strategic planning process for trust-based policing, as my chief called it. And so I brought together a, uh, a of committee members representing some of those most disaffected members in the community, those with the largest trust gaps, and a group of officers. And over the course of several weeks and months, we had repeated conversations where I saw the community members and the officers start to come together, start to understand one another, and then start to develop plans on how to move police community trust forward. And it was at the last meeting, and one of the uh, the members of the community, committee who's actually gone on to be the council president back there in madison looks at me and she says chief or captain at the time she says my advice to you is don't try to deal with community trust until you get your own house in order you need to deal with your own trust gaps within your own organization because your officers will treat us no better than you treat them and that's what started my interest uh, that's now become my passion into this whole idea of understanding leadership development and how Critically, it is that we create just organizations, ethically sound leadership systems within organizations, and we disperse leadership throughout the organization so the members of the organization feel valued, respected, trusted as professionals, and they buy into the vision, because then you can trust them with your beloved community. But if they're not lined up behind you, if you don't have value alignment, or they don't feel like they're trusted and respected, they will treat the public the same way they perceive the, their leadership system treating them, and in a, a profession dominated by uh, a command and control, uh, uh, keep your mouth shut and just do what I do what I say, or as we say, see the gold and do as you're told. Uh, that doesn't bode well. We don't want our officers treating the public that way. So uh, when I talk about the need to transform policing and improve policing, I'm talking about improving the leadership systems. When we do that, we'll improve the quality of the service they deliver. So. To, to me it's about fixing this and this will take care of itself through training and improving our leadership system
0: uh, councilman um, you know I don't think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that statistics suggest you know people in uh, high crime neighborhoods have the greatest interest in effective policing so it's sort of a, a strange di- dichotomy exists these days um, and certainly trust is a it's a two-way street. It's not just something the police do into the community. So, can you share some thoughts about, you know, how that two-way street may work from the community perspective, and how how the community can help build trust?
3: Yes, um, a couple of things. One, I just want to highlight two of the things I've heard chiefs say. Um, one is presence. Being present matters um, from a police-community relationship, whether it's As an example, when the chief and then Commander Holmes came into the community a year ago after a tragic shooting and were willing to sit and be present and hear and listen to the concerns, that opened up some communication gaps. Um, Commander Brackney on the north side, she's now moved on as well, but higher. um, But she would do walkthroughs with the community to try to get ahead of it, to say, let's just walk down your street for a while. Well, the community also has to respond to that. They also have to sort of understand, and the vast majority do, that the police are here to help you, to work with you, not to fight you. Um, And the community has to step up. I often lean towards our faith-based community to provide that leadership. Um, I know in the Hill District, many of our ministers want to have a very intimate relationship (laughs) with our chief, with the Zone 2 commander, and on down the ranks, um, so that you can't always have that line of communication. I think the other thing the community can do, when I say community from this perspective, I mean government, is we also have to be able, be willing to share information. Um, we can't, the police force, government, can't just hold everything internally and not be willing to say, this is what happened. And a while back, the chief mentioned data-driven policing so that when we, go, when we come into a community, the community can say, why are you on this corner at this time? What is happening? And the police can say, "I can show you right firsthand where the crime is. This is where it's disseminating from. This is why we're here." And then it becomes common knowledge, um, sharing information over what happens when you have shootings, whether it be on to a citizen or to an officer. Because unfortunately, many in the community don't really realize to the extent that what officers may be shot at in, in the line of duty. Um, so, opening up the information and sharing that also becomes critical. On both sides Um, and I just think at the end of the day the community has to and the majority do understand that this needs to be a relationship Um, but doing those small things will allow for that to occur.
0: Time for questions from the audience we might note that there because this is being recorded uh, we'd ask you to wait for a microphone uh, so that the television audience can uh, pick up the question but also so other people here can hear. Questions? Mrs. Springer. I'm from Brooklyn, New York.
4: And when I was growing up, what we had was community people who were interested in becoming policemen. So there was a lot of recruitment in my community. There was
3: one particular family, and their last name was Irish, and they all became policemen, African American family. But they knew the community, they knew the churches, they knew the schools. So when they became officers, they were placed in the community, so they understood all of the emotions of the community and where it was going. I don't feel that we recruit in the communities that are at risk to the degree that we have people from that community being trained to be police officers to go back to the community. Is that something that we should be looking forward to? Yes, And I don't want to speak for the chief. Final (laughs) beats, (laughs) me, No, but this is a conversation that's come up. And I do know the chief is looking for very innovative ways to actually go into the community. And to Mr. Thiemann's last question of me, the community is open to saying, let's come into our churches and do recruitment. Let's come into our community centers and work with you so that the test can be held there as opposed to once a year at the convention center, as an example. And I know there are other ways that the police force is looking to truly have that relationship in the community so that there are those who look up respect and then want to be a part of it. Something else the community can do to also bridge this relationship that is being created is police athletic leagues within the city of Pittsburgh to increase that relationship so our kids at a very young age see the police as a role model a sort of father figure in many ways, um, but not in an adversarial way. Um, so yes, that is something you can look for, but you can yeah, so Absolutely, <laughs> and it's, it's a, one of the things that's foremost in my mind. And uh,
2: we're doing all of the above. We're doing uh, as much targeted recruiting as we can. Uh, we're partnering with Hill House mm-hmm. to set up mentoring programs to help people succeed on the test when they decide to put in. Uh, working very hard with personnel and civil service to try to see what we can do to expand it, but we are constrained in a, in a lot of ways. You know, the hiring the hiring model utilized, and it, remember, every police department exists in the context of its larger cultural structure and political structure. And so, we all look at I looked at the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police, wondered why is it not more diverse. But what I have what I didn't realize till I was here on the boots on the ground is we are. Um, spark doesn't do the hiring. There's a personnel in civil service that does the hiring. It's the competitive civil service model from 1907. I'll say that again, 1907. And so there's certain aspects of it that make it difficult to be able to hire for the business case necessity of diversity, whether it's gender or race. And so that's why I'm putting all of my effort into... Pushing toward the police-community relationship and pushing our recruitment because the one thing I can, the one variable in this equation I can control is to flood the inbox. So the more qualified candidates I, more people I come to get to put in, the more qualified candidates I hope to get, and I hope the more I hope to be successful. But uh, police agencies throughout the country are really struggling getting good uh, qualified candidates of color, in probably no small. Uh, Part because of some of the trust gaps that exist between our communities of color and, and policing, people simply look at us and say, "I don't, I don't want to be part of that." And I'm hoping that people are, our message to them is resonating. Please come. You'll be, we will be better when you're here. Help me change it from the inside. So I'm hoping that we're going to catch some traction, but it, it's an uphill, an uphill, struggle.
0: It's also safe to say there's a certain debate going on in. in you know, the police hiring community as to, you know, and it's similar to the debate going on around SATs and college admissions whether there's institutional bias in the testing that's taken place. And one, one interesting model, and Chief, I'm not sure to what extent uh, uh, the community college has been involved, but, you know, a model for the fire department is the community college actually started providing classes to help uh, students pass the entry exam for the fire union, and as a result of that, uh, the diversity entering the fire union has increased. I'm not sure if you've had any discussions in that regard. CCAC
2: does do test preparation. Now, not everybody goes, but the, the d- data does suggest that those who do are more successful, and so we're certainly urging that pro- people to participate in that, and then again, we have Hill House, we're writing another grant to try to do similar things, actually in the neighborhoods where people are more comfortable. So. Yeah, it's an all-hands-on-deck effort. We have a question in the
0: back.
4: Chief Srini and I have a Part A and a Part B. There was an NPR segment a while back where they talked about basically changing the mindset of the police officer from the arresting officer to a caring officer, Mm -hmm. therefore being engaged in things like, well, if you have a water main leak break, we will send a police officer so that we know that you are as much interested in nurturing the community as much as protecting the community. So my question there is: the uh, Part A question is, are you all doing some things in terms of educating the police force with the help of psychologists, etc., to change their mindset? The second part of the question is: in healthcare, we face a similar situation. So we cannot get our socially and economically challenged young teenage pregnant people to go to the hospitals. So what we do in healthcare is we call the doula program. Uh, the doula is a Greek word for midwife. And so we, we engage with the community leaders or, or people who are respected and train them. So it's almost train the trainer. So they will go to the midwife or the local community leader, and we know they're taken care of, and they will send them to the hospital when necessary. So rather than directly recruiting, do you have train the trainer programs as well, which may also help offset the sort of arresting officer versus caring officer mentality?
2: A couple, a couple of pieces do that. Again, the... Uh, the fundamental question is how do we contemplate ourselves? And the, uh, I'm continually trying to remind us that we, you know, bring us back to the the Pelian principles of police being the community, community being police. I'm uh, trying to continue to reinforce the fact that we are peace officers, that our job is to intervene to preserve the peace and reduce crime fear disorder when it's necessary. So, trying to facilitate that paradigm shift and modeling that paradigm shift. Uh, one of the things I'm doing uh, is rewriting the department's mission and value statement, and I wanted to make sure it was participative, so I created a, a cross-representational committee to help me with that. And uh, I'm very pleased I saw their first draft the other day, and they used in there the word guardian, because part of the paradigm shift that was subtle that occurred in policing over the last couple decades is this: the officer safety paradigm, this idea is that we've got to be really well-trained to be really safe because it's a really dangerous job, has gotten us to where we talk about the warrior mentality. And too much got borrowed from the military model. So I'm very pleased to see my organizational members grabbing a hold of and remembering our role is to be guardians within the community. Now, with respect to uh, the midwife midwife model, I I don't have a direct frame of reference or uh, parallel I can draw. One of the things I'm kicking around in my head, and I'm trying to be able to gel it. I know that it, uh, in the NYPD, one of the programs they have in place is a uh, community partner program. And what that what they do is every new officer who goes to a new area gets a community partner. Now That's a member of the community who lives there, works there, who knows people there. That community partner becomes the mentor for this new officer who introduces himself. This is the neighborhood. Here are our values. Here's what's important to us. Here's what's not important to us. Here's what you need to know about us. Here's who you need to know. So when an officer goes to a community meeting, this person, this partner, is there introducing them around. So what this does is it shifts the paradigm from the, you are the eyes and ears, and we're the cops. You, know, you tell us where the problem is and get out of the way, and we'll, we'll come fix it, to elevating this community partner to, to, a, to an equal partner. And in fact, the, the officer now becomes becomes interdependent with this officer, are with this community member. So, the goal is to shift the paradigm and uh, through modeling, through training, and then creating functional ways that it becomes necessary. And as officers come into a new context, they're very uncomfortable. They don't, especially if it's a, a context they're not used to. So, to have a partner will build that understanding and that appreciation that this, comu- this community can help me be successful. So, I'm trying to shift the paradigm.
1: I mean, if, if I can jump in on that, too, to sort of in, in thinking about changing a culture and changing the way that sort of individual officers think. I, I'll sound somewhat like a researcher, but I mean, recent, some, some recent RAND uh, sort of work that we focused on has looked at you know, how do you measure what you are trying to have individual officers mm-hmm. do. And so when, when we go in and look at a police department, there are certain things that are very easy to measure. You can measure numbers of crimes, you can measure number of arrests, you can measure contact cards, you can measure the number of times an officer stops and frisks someone if it's a department that's focusing on that. It's much harder to measure sort of the relationship with the community and how that's changing. And so at a biweekly <coughs> CompStat meeting, which is sort of the statistical meeting that many police departments use to sort of look at how they're doing, it's easy to have a dashboard with arrests and crimes. But it's not so easy to have one that sort of said, okay, over the last two weeks, you know, here's how, you know, sort of the community's feelings about what's going on have changed. Mm -hmm. Community surveys, which the chief mentioned is sort of one way to do that, but that's not an every two week thing. You know, that isn't something that puts something on leadership's dashboard, whether that's a chief or whether that's, you know, at the precinct level that sort of gives them an opportunity to manage that and sort of ask officers, well, you know, okay, this ticked down this week. You know, okay, what have, what have we been doing that's changed? And you know, why do we think that is? Where it's very easy to ask that question about numbers of arrests. So in some ways this comes back to kind of you've got to learn how to measure it and we need better ways to measure that for a department that has a close relationship with the community to start out with. You know, people talking to the police department can be one of those feeds of information, but... You know, until until you build that, figuring out you know, how to plug that into decision making is an important piece here. Yeah.
0: And, and I'll be very quick, but okay. some people know this, but a lot don't. That the chief <clears throat> chief mentioned Peelian principles. It goes back to Sir Robert Peel in about 1840, the first police chief. I'm sorry, who created the f- first police force in the world? They were called bobbies in London because they were Robert's boys, bobbies. They didn't carry guns. Their purpose was prevention. So, 200 years later, when you think, it's not really a mindset forward; it's a mindset back. And the Peelian principles, just quickly: prevent crime. The police depend on public approval. It's based upon cooperation. Cooperation reduces the need for force. Police must be, policing must be based on friendliness, justice, impartiality. Force only when necessary and the least level appropriate. Police are paid citizens, not the judge and jury. test of good police is the absence of crime. That's 200 years ago. So uh, in some regards, you know, it's, it's looking back to our roots rather than something new. Uh, we had a question back there, I think, and then we'll come up to Eric. Hi.
1: Um, so I imagine that implementing a lot of these strategies relies on having um, both police officers who are willing to try to, you know, foster community trust and a community that's willing to have officers be a part of their community. And I guess my question, or where I'm a little skeptical at times, is how do you approach officers who perhaps have been in the field for years and years, and they whatever values they are brought up with, whatever perceptions that they probably will never get rid of, how do you, you deal with them? Because I imagine they present a challenge in fostering trust if they can never see a community as anything more than source of violence and crime. Um, and I think that's sometimes where I think people... F- feel skeptical about this relationship being able to be implemented.
2: No, and, that, and that's fair. And there's a couple, a couple pieces, two pieces to that, to that, of course. Uh, we all learn what we're brought up to do, and in, people brought up in an organization that, for the most part, saw itself as a law enforcement, a law and order paradigm organization. Changing those models is difficult. Changing a culture like that is, is difficult one of the ways that you do that is by uh, showing that they will realize greater success and things that are important to them by trying new ways. And so uh, that, that's, that's the one, is help them show they can be more effective. Uh, as, as a uh, leader, I can choose what I reinforce, what I reward, and what I don't. It's a, in, historically, we've been a very numbers-driven organization, how many guns, how many drugs, how many arrests. And you have to be really careful when you only measure outcomes and you don't, look too, you don't look closely enough at the means used to accomplish those. And so looking at rewarding people who model the, the type of policing, the community-engaged policing, emphasizing the means, even if the outcomes aren't as spectacular, if people did really great work, treated people well, and had even modest success, those are the, the ones I, I want to, want to reward. But I think my biggest vulnerability isn't as much uh, people aren't willing to explore new things because most reasonable people are. It's the stress that people, that officers in policing are under right now nationally, locally even more so. This organization's been through some very rough seas in terms of lo- you know losing you know, three officers in '09, several shot, two consent decrees, a lot of public criticism, perception that even some in their own city government don't trust them. And so uh, stress is a very, very big uh, impact, has a very strong impact, very profound impact on our capacity to deal with stress and then how we treat other people. And so as uh, internally I'm communicating to my command staff that my number one concern is stress mitigation. I have to get a handle on the stress that our people are under, find ways to make them more resilient, help them deal with some of the challenges they've been through so they can find a place to put this baggage of pain that we've been carrying around so that we can move forward. So there, it's a very complex <laughs> complex thing. And uh, I, again, it just kind of gets back to my earlier point that the better care I take of them and the more clear I am about the expectations and what I reward, I think I can show improvement over time. But is that the same as saying it's going to be easy? Is there
5: something that we can question? Is there something that can be done in police training that builds in some kind of barrier that says, okay, let him go because I got all his information or it's, let me call ahead to buddies at the next interception or intersection so that we don't have that knee jerk reaction of a bad guy let's put a center mass on his spine or his head. Uh, because we are trained well to do that. I was an excellent soldier, and if they'd sent me to Korea, I would have killed. I mean, it was I Forget the law degree, forget all that fancy stuff, uh, being a, a lover of Shakespeare. I was, my mission was to kill people, and I think we, we, we make that mission so clear that sometimes it's not thought through. It's just pull your weapon, sure, sure. fire at the center.
2: Uh, It's a tough question, but uh, it troubles me. No, not really. No, I appreciate you asking. Uh, We teach, we program. You You were programmed. Yes. You were programmed such that under high levels of psychological stress, your body would simply react, and you would overcome the natural human resistance to killing, even if you didn't want to. That's what you would do under stress. We program officers, too, but we program them very, very, very differently. The mission of police officers is not to kill. Anybody in particular, let alone particular groups. Okay, so the mission of police is as peace officers to reduce crime fear and disorder to serve the community, and we teach the use of force very judiciously with an eye on that on that role. Now, can organ police use of force training emphasize the physical skills and underemphasize the decision-making skills or underemphasize Communication skills, or underemphasize the mission and the roles and the context for it. It can happen. Absolutely, it can. Uh, I think the profession generally has come to a reasonable place where most places do it reasonably well. The issue, though, is always: Are we reinforcing the role, and are we reinforcing the decision making? And so, uh, one of the things that you know Pittsburgh Police does quite well. Is the the training to include the decision making using both simulations, uh, you know, electronic simulators as well as role playing scenarios. So we always reinforce that decision making component. But you're absolutely right. What people do and what our officers do under stress is a product of how they're programmed and what they're trained to do. One of the uh, I spent most of my career as a use of force trainer, and one of the things that scared me, it frightened me. Is when i was finally exposed to impl- implicit bias training and i learned that because we teach officers you you make your decisions based on your reasonable perception of threat then when i came to understand bi- implicit bias i started to ask oh my what if our perceptions are unreasonable because of un- biases we have so that's why of all of the menu of all of the things i want to teach here implicit bias is right at the very top of the list because What is it that's causing us to perceive threat? And are there things there interfering with that decision-making process? So your point's a good one. We get nothing better out than we put into it, and training is everything, because under the high levels of psychological stress that police officers are under, the cognitive processes aren't working. They're reacting reflexively based on the training that's in there. So training is everything.
0: And the law is very clear. Appropriate levels of escalation, only the next level necessary to respond to the situation. But as the chief says, uh, it's a reasonable person interpretation, both legally and in practice. And so it gets more complicated. Mr. Tompkins.
5: Uh, Two questions. One, why isn't there a woman on the panel? And (laughs) very seriously, because there's a certain perspective we would have gotten from a female that we would get from y'all, which is Okay. And secondarily, is um, what role should the Fraternal Order of Police play um, in changing – this is for Chief McClay what, – what role should they play in, 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 in changing the paradigm within the department? And secondarily, how receptive have they been to you as an outsider?
2: No, thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, they, recognize, they recognize that they're, like me, they're custodians of this, or, this organization, the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police. They have a leadership role. Uh, what I expected when I came, because I was com- hired an understanding, I, I was having to fix things that were broken. I was expecting to be met with 850 folded arms. And what I was pleasantly surprised to discover is what I heard a lot, and I continue to hear a lot, is, chief, we're glad you're here. We're better than this. We want to do better. This is a very proud organization, and they really want to do well. Uh, and so the the... The, shift, the paradigm shift that I'm hoping to be able to successfully put in place is to have myself and the FOP leadership work much more closely together. So I uh, went to Washington a few, a couple months ago now to the uh, Police Executive Research Forum for a discussion about police trust with, with respect to management and union. And I said, I'll only come if I can bring our FOP president. And what I was, what I was uh, hoping that we would successfully do is help him to recognize the incredible opportunity that he has as a union president to help his org, his membership succeed by joining with me as I try to create an ethical climate where people are treated fair and we've got internally just systems. So, help, help, hoping that we all come to understand that union and management actually want the same thing. We want our people well taken care of. We want them well supported. We want them to serve the public, and we just come. We look at those those objectives through different filters. But uh, my goal is to try to get us working effectively together. Now, there's a lot of uh, habit energies, if you will, that have union and management quite regularly doing this. Right? I mean, it's kind of uh, it's not atypical, particularly in a context where city and the union couldn't come to a contractual agreement, so we're in arbitration right now. So it, it, that's made that process of building those bridges uh, a little bit more challenging, but I think we want the same thing. So I'm I'm optimistic. I'm gonna I'm gonna get where I need to go. And we we plead
0: guilty to not having a woman on the panel. We we did discuss it, but quite frankly, uh, too little, too late. And if we had to do it over again, we probably would have a woman on the panel. So we understand that's a weakness. So thanks for pointing it out.
5: My question to Councilman had to do with what. The council itself is doing in the community
2: itself to bridge the gap between to bridge the gap, uh, the trust gap between the police and the community, and basically what exactly are some of the programs in place by the council that is seeking to educate the community about how they should relate with the uh, police. My second question to uh, Chief had to do with what exactly is also the police doing in terms of educating the community as to how they can interpret their perceived threat actions so that they will act in a certain way. That will not necessitate that the kind of reactions that you have been exposed to in the few decades.
3: So relative to <coughs> Pittsburgh City Council, um, the council has taken in the past legislative actions try to strengthen community-police um, relationships. What I've always been fearful of doing as a legislator is legislating procedure, legislating exactly how officers should do that. Um, I don't believe that's my field of expertise. I believe councils should legislate things such as body cameras, um, things such as reporting mechanisms to open up the conversation over what is being shared with the public um, and bringing other resources to the police force, but necessarily legislating how they should specifically do their job. I personally get leery of that. Um, what I will also say is that the council members then get engaged. We also legislated, because I see Gilmer's going to speak next, um, but Reverend Burgess, maybe two and a half years ago or so, um, brought forth the perk. Pittsburgh initiative to reduce crime and that was legislated that was an initiative based on other models in Boston and Cincinnati mm-hmm. um, to bring into the city and be proactive in getting in front of some of the violence that we were dealing so that was also legislated as well what we also do um, working with not only this council but the mayor's office and others uh, a week ago no two weeks ago we had a citywide public safety meeting um, where the emphasis was about youth at that one um, we do those quarterly And then monthly, there are public safety councils that meet in each one of our districts. Um, Another thing we often try to do is make sure that the community officer assigned will often accompany us to meetings within our districts to report out what is actually happening, usually within, say, a four or five block radius. Um, So that's some of the things that we've been working on.
2: One of of the one of the areas uh, that uh, I would like to see (coughs) improve, I would like to improve on, is uh, our ability to communicate with the um, with the with the community with the public. I mean, it's my my responsibility to be able to communicate to the community where we're trying to go, what the goals are but then also be able to educate the community what my limitations are, what are those obstacles that are going to get in the way, because I've got to be able to create realistic expectations of what police-citizen interactions are going to look like, realistic expectations in terms of how long it's going to take in order to get towards the the desired vision, and probably most importantly, what I need for community to do. So we're having a lot of those conversations in the uh, at the various venues that the councilman's describing, we have a lot of community meetings where we go, so we're able to do that there. Uh, what I'm hoping to be able to get better at is being able to leverage the, the media, get them more willing to help us with that that very very important messaging. Uh, right now, we're not terribly successful with that, and uh, we're very the media will commonly present on the bad things that happen, but when there's positive events. Or there's important messaging we want out there, or we're doing a recruitment fair and we'd really like some airtime to get people to show up. We're less successful in that, so uh, there's room for improvement there. We're I'm working. On it.
4: Um, you mentioned trust a lot, so the question is: Have you seen any metrics that make sense? I mean, have you seen? And what are people measuring around the country? Is RAND working on that issue at all? Is anyone looking at that? And has anyone done a good job with increasing trust?
1: Well, so the measurement issue, the, the the sort of the gold standard way that the field does it is community surveys, where you can you know actually get a good sample and know know that you are getting a representative you know sort of picture of people's opinions, you know, asking questions you know that range from you know their whether they do trust the police, whether they would call the police uh, for help um, and assistance. Um, and you know, sort of, th- that's sort of the, the, the established way in the field for um, getting a, a baseline for what a community thinks. The problem with those is you know, surveys take time, and so you know, you can you put it in the field and you, know, you analyze all the data, and you know, probably the best case scenario is you know, you, you know what trust was like a month ago, you know, or two months ago, um, and so you know, figuring out new ways to measure that and to be able to sort of take the temperature of a community, whether it's you know, through social media, whether it's through, you know, other ways of outreach, is something that, you know, that I think actually is a, you know, sort of an important, um, you know, sort of element of, uh, you know, sort of research in this area, to, to give, you know, chiefs and, and, and police leaders um, better tools to do this. Um, RAND has been involved in some of this sort of work. Um, some years ago now, we actually were part of a work in Cincinnati um, that was related to police reform in Cincinnati, um, where you know are being researchers uh, supporting that process and you know sort of being an impartial source of data that could you know gather information that you know both the department and the critics of that department could trust was you know sort of a part of that reform process and that's certainly something that that sort of we pursue you know looking for opportunities to do again because it's sort of a, a chance for you know us to have an impact and, and you know and try to improve things over time.
0: So I might ask you a quick question, Paul. Would clearance rates be an example of trust, uh, or is that too? Well, so you know, measures like
1: that are, are 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 related to trust, as 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 you know, sort of. We heard when the community is willing to you know come to the police department with information that you know helps clear crime. But of course, there are other ways to get clearance rates up that that have nothing to do with the relationship with the community. I mean, some uh, interesting sort of uh, measures that people have used if things are, have been trying to look at different reporting rates for different kinds of crimes to police. So we now have technology uh, that will detect gunshots across the community. Um, and you know, initially that was put out as you know a, an attempt to you know, get better police response. You know, the gunshot goes off, the technology detects it, it appears in the records management system and a car can be dispatched. But what researchers, and these were not sort of brand folks, did was sort of looked at that and realized, well, actually it's sort of interesting to look in different areas of a city for what fraction of those gunshots were called into 911. And in some communities, uh, you know, a very high percentage of the gunshots were called into 911. other communities, uh, not so high. And so there are, you know, there are ways that you can sort of use, um, you know, things that would be traditionally considered, you know, sort of policing measures to, to look at community trust, but you have to sort of tease out, um, you know, sort of what part of that uh, reflects the relationship between the community and the police and what parts don't.
0: I want to thank you all for joining us, and I mainly want to thank our wonderful panel for such an informative and nuanced discussion. Thank you so much. It was fantastic. Um, This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org.